before we begin the seventh and last series, can we just commit it to the Lord and ask the Lord for his blessing on all those who are going to listen and for every single one in this particular series. Can we, can we just pray together? Father, it's been a long time since I began the basic series of Bible studies. And Father, I just thank you even tonight for your grace to me. Father, I thank you. There have been times when I've wondered which way to go, but you've always shown me the way. And Father, I've just had to spend a bit of time before you, and I've seen the footprints going ahead of me. Father, I just testify publicly tonight to your wonderful enabling power. I thank you, Father, for those times when I've been just so filled with the Holy Spirit. As I've come into these meetings, I've just known that you're king and that you are the one who's going to speak. But I thank you for the other times when I've come in and I've wondered how it's going to go and, and how it's going to come out. And as soon as I've stood up, the Holy Spirit's been right there just to encourage and, and to do the teaching. Father, I thank you so much. There is only one teacher, and it is the Holy Spirit who teaches us. Father, I would release your spirit in the name of Jesus into this meeting. I would release your spirit into every one of us in this place tonight, that we should find that we are thrilled because of the Holy Spirit in the midst tonight. Oh, Father, it's wonderful that you've given us that comforter, the wonderful comforter, who is always with us. Father, we thank you that his desire is to glorify Jesus, and we ask tonight that Jesus may be glorified through all that is said and in all our understanding. Come and anoint us that we should be so anointed that we should take in the deep and hidden things of the word of truth. Oh, Father, we just pray for all those listening to this course, this seventh course of Bible studies, that, Father, they may be strangely moved, Father, warmed by the presence of the Holy Spirit, and that, Father, their lives shall be altered dramatically through the truth shared during this course. Thank you for all your guidance in the past, but we thank you for the faith that we have that you are with us always, even in the future. Just come and bless us tonight, Lord. In Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you, Lord. Amen. Amen. Well, we're beginning the seventh basic course of Bible studies tonight. And may I tell you this, it's ten years ago since we started this basic course of Bible studies. And we've covered a huge amount of material from that time, 10 years ago, to the present evening. I have to have confessed to this, there were times, say five or six years ago, when I really wondered whether we'd ever come to the end. And amazingly now, I can actually see the end in sight. We have 14 more studies, and we have completed all of the basic course. Can I remind you of the aim behind the basic course? The aim in this course is that we should present to Christians enough information so that when they pick up the Bible, they should be able to read it for themselves. And right at the beginning, the Lord said to me, don't be afraid to talk about history. Don't be afraid to talk about the original languages. I'll do the teaching. You just provide the information. And I hope by this stage in the course, all of you now can pick up your Bible and begin to understand what it says, whether you're in the Old Testament or whether you're in the New Testament, whether you're in a historical passage or whether you're in a prophetic passage, you have some idea now what is being said in the Word of God. And I trust also that the framework that's been developed and that we've given in the course of these talks has actually altered your life. You don't have to be fearful anymore. The Lord has told us the way that we're going, and it's good news. He's given us all things that pertain unto life. Isn't that wonderful? 
And so, uh, having covered many basic subjects, I mean, isn't it wonderful? We've been through salvation, we've been through judgments, we've been through fulfilled prophecy, we've been through unfulfilled prophecy, we've been through the hardest of all the courses, which is the character of God, and we've now been through the sixth course, which is the Word of God. And to complete this, I had to seek the Lord. Lord, now, which way do you want me to go now, just to complete this course? You see, we've done special tapes that have filled in the gaps, as it were, between the basic tapes. But I asked the Lord, Lord, what do you want me to do so that people who have heard this course may actually know how to walk in the Christian life? And the Lord gave me the title, which is the title of the seventh series, Essentials for Growth. Because you see, no matter how much knowledge you've got in your head, unless you are growing in the Lord, we haven't succeeded. Definitely not. And growth is the name of the game. Do you know that when you were born again, the imperishable seed was put inside of you, and that seed has been growing from the moment you were born again until this present time. And that seed, like all seeds in creation, brings forth after its own kind. You see? That seed is the imperishable person of Jesus, and it's going to bring forth Jesus in you. Isn't that good news? And by the way, everyone's going to make it. You know, Romans 8, 29 actually says that the thing we're predestined to is this, right? We are predestined to be conformed to his image. No matter who you are, no matter what sort of status you have in society, if you have believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, he that's begun the good work in you will bring it to completion. Isn't that wonderful? He is able to keep you from falling and see you through to that day, which is lovely. All right, but some of us don't just want Jesus to be revealed in us when we arrive in heaven. We're keen to have Jesus formed in us while we're down here on this earth. And how quickly Jesus is formed in us depends, funnily enough, on how much freedom the Holy Spirit has to move within us. This course is designed to help you grow and to help me grow in the things that pertain unto godliness. We'll be covering subjects like this. We'll be talking about prayer, the mechanics of prayer, what prayer really is. We're going to be talking about faith and what faith is and what it's not. That's very important. You often hear people talking about what faith is, But I wonder whether you've ever known that some people have so-called faith, and it's not faith at all. Uh, We're going to be talking about the blood of Jesus, and how important it is, and what a powerful weapon. We're going to be talking about fasting. We're going to be talking about the way of holiness, and so on. But I came to the Lord, and I said, but Lord, how do you want me to begin? And he simply said this, growth comes when we move and live and walk in the Spirit of the Lord. And he said, begin this course on essentials for growth by thinking about the Holy Spirit and specifically by thinking about the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Do you know, and this will come as a shock to some of you, even though I am a recognized charismatic speaker, do you know I have never given a biblical analysis of the baptism of the Holy Spirit? I've never done it anywhere. And in fact, these two talks are going to be the first time I have ever done it. Now, I'm amazed as well, but in fact, that's the facts of the matter. I was very tempted just to give one and to give, uh, you know, a talk on why we believe in the baptism of the Spirit and how to be baptized in the Holy Spirit. But when I prayed about it some more, the Lord said to me, no, make sure that people understand what you're talking about generally. And you know, one of the problems in the charismatic church today, in Pentecostal churches as well, is this, that many people are baptized in the Holy Spirit, but many of them don't know really what they've got. 
And often I hear charismatics making statements which are biblically wrong, and not just wrong, they're absolutely rude. Because there are many Christians outside, you know, who are wonderful born-again Christians who aren't actually baptized in the Holy Spirit. And the way some charismatics speak, it's as if they're second-class Christians. Or I've heard some people say, well, of course, they don't have the Holy Spirit, and make statements like this. Nothing is designed to put Christians off the charismatic movement than false teaching like that. And so what we're going to do is this. We're going to have two studies on the subject of the baptism of the Holy Spirit. But in this one, I'm going to talk about the person of the Holy Spirit. And we're going to understand what the Holy Spirit has done. And then next time, we can launch into the baptism of the Spirit. And we will be praying for people after the next Bible study. So if you're not baptized in the Holy Spirit, and you want to be baptized in the Holy Spirit, come along next time, and we will pray for you. It's very hard, by the way, to give a Bible study on the Holy Spirit. It's the hardest thing in all the world. Um, Do you know why? The Holy Spirit is preoccupied with Jesus. He only wants to talk about Jesus. Now, if I'm going to be in the Spirit tonight, we're going to end up talking about Jesus. But I've got to try and steer things back so that we speak about the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is almost the shy member of the Godhead. He doesn't want to appear. He just wants to glorify Jesus all the time. Well, we're going to concentrate on him. The course as a whole has been filled with the person of Jesus, and so I'm sure that the Lord will indulge me tonight by allowing me to speak about the Holy Spirit. Do you remember when we were dealing with the character of God, I said that many of the early truths that the church had had been lost within just a few decades of the day of Pentecost. And we talked about the person of the Lord Jesus, and I actually said it took 400 years for the church to agree in their definition about who Jesus was. Well, if you remember that, it will come as no surprise to you that it wasn't only the person of Jesus that uh, they seemed to lose sight of, it was also the person of the Holy Spirit that they lost sight of. The church began understanding the doctrine of the Holy Spirit, and within a few decades they've forgotten it. And do you know, it took 400 years again before the church actually came back to agreement concerning this wonderful person we call the Holy Spirit. What they did was this. They began, instead of seeing the Holy Spirit as a person, they began to see him as a force, as power, as God's power. They began to call the Holy Spirit it. It, God's power. And soon they even forgot that the Holy Spirit was God himself. And lots and lots of false ideas came in, as if there was God and Jesus, and their power was the thing we call the Holy Spirit, but really, it was just a force. They forgot that the Holy Spirit was a person, and they forgot that he was God. Now, one of the things we've got to establish very firmly at the outset tonight is this. The Holy Spirit is a person. Isn't that good news? Praise the Lord. Secondly, he is God. He is the third member of the Godhead, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, one God, one in essence, but three in personality. And we've got to underline that. Let's take them in turn, shall we? Why is it essential to know that the Holy Spirit is a person? Well, it's very simple. A person can do that which a force cannot do. Do you know that? You see, a person can love you. A force can't. A person can care for you. A force can't. A person can understand you. A force cannot. 
A person, you know, really takes you onto his heart and can actually have a dialogue with you. A force cannot. There's not a person in this room that can ever say they've been loved by electricity. You, you might have been shocked a little by it, but you certainly haven't been loved by it. I mean, no one comes along and they put their hand into a live socket, and as they're flying through the air, say, oh, it loves me. Oh, I feel so loved. You know, I've just touched this bare wire. Oh, I'm so loved. Of course you don't do that. It's, it's quite impossible. If something bad comes on the radio, you don't say, well, I'm very sad, and I should imagine electricity is very sad as well, having to power that sort of thing. You see, of course, it's ridiculous. A force cannot do it. These are things that belong to personality. And by the way, isn't it good news for those of us who are teachers? Teaching machines will never take over from the human teacher. Never. You see? A force cannot do what a person can do. You imagine it, one of these teaching machines. You know, they're programmed. Did you know that? And it asks a question, you know, uh, what is the capital of the United States of America? Is it Peking? Is it Washington, D.C.? Is it Chipping Sobbery? You know, and they have A, B, and C. And it's programmed. Now the little child looks at this and presses the key. Now, if, this, if it's right, then the machine goes on to the next one, right? And, and that's super. If it's wrong, the machine then goes back and asks the question again. Now, as long as they both play this game, they're all right. But if the little child then keys in, I'm feeling sick, <laughs> the machine simply says, uh, not enough data, <laughs> right? Or please reprogram or something like that. If the child then programmed it and said, I've been sick, <laughs> the machine just says, no. If the child actually falls off the chair and is lying unconscious on the ground, the machine is just there. There is no response, you see. A person responds, a force does not. And listen, if you think that the Holy Spirit is just a force, oh, I'm filled with the power of the Holy Ghost. If that's the way you think about him, you've missed an awful lot, you see. We've got to get it clear. The Holy Spirit is a person. We need to know that. The Bible shows it clearly that he is, and it shows it in many different ways. I wonder if we can just uh, have a look at John's Gospel. We'll be in John's Gospel quite a lot tonight, but in John's Gospel and chapter 16, John's Gospel and chapter 16, and what I want to tell you is this, that if the Holy Spirit was just a force, he would be called it in the Bible, constantly. He's not. If you go to verse 13, this is speaking about the person of the Holy Spirit. And in John 16, verse 13, notice how the Holy Spirit is spoken of. How be it, and this is Jesus speaking, how be it when he... Now, the pronoun is he. It's used deliberately. It's not it. When he, the spirit of truth, is come, he will guide you into all truth. He shall not speak of himself, but whatsoever he shall hear, that shall he speak. A force can't hear, but the Holy Spirit can hear. He hears, and so he speaks. Good news. And he will show you things to come. He shall glorify me, for he shall receive of mine and shall show it unto you. And can I just tell you, this is very bad Greek indeed. Do you know that um, we in English, we find some languages pretty difficult. I remember the shock I had when I first started learning French. 
that the French actually have masculine and feminine nouns. You know, I mean, some nouns are feminine, she. Other nouns are masculine, he. And you have to remember which one. And the word the comes in a masculine and feminine form. It's agony. I mean, you have to remember, is it le port or la port? And, of course, you're always getting it wrong. A le fenetra, la fenetra. We in England generally don't know this, do we? I mean, everything's just an it. The table, the chair, the door. We don't have feminine. Well, we have a ship. She's a she, isn't he? You know the ship. Oh, she's sailing out. And what a beautiful ship she is. And we might have the fatherland and the motherland. But generally, it's just it. The piano, it. In French, you have to learn. Is it le? Is it la? In Greek, it's also very complicated. You have some things that are masculine, and they're called he. Some things which are feminine, and they go with she. And some things that are neuter, and they go with it. Now, the word for spirit is the word pneuma, P-N-E-U-M-A. And that's neuter. And it should actually have the pronoun it. The odd thing is, wherever the Holy Spirit is talked about, it's always he. And that's deliberately put in to show you, look, this is not just a force, he is a real person. So when you read bad Greek like this, it it underlines the point, he's a person. Great news. As a person, he does things that people do. Uh, Just go further up in uh, John 16. John 16, verse 7. The Holy Spirit does things. Look. Nevertheless, says Jesus, I tell you the truth, it is expedient for you that I go away. If I go not away, the Comforter will not come unto you. But if I depart, I will send him unto you. And when he is come, he will convince the world of sin, of righteousness, and of judgment. In other words, he will enter into dialogue with the world, and he'll convince them about sin. We've dealt with this passage, haven't we, in the tape on evangelism in the Fellowship Life series. That's what a person does. We'll see other things that a person does. Go to uh, John 15, verse 26. Look at this. But when the Comforter is come, whom I will send unto you from the Father, and notice these things, Jesus is the one who will send the Holy Spirit to us, even the Spirit of truth which proceedeth from the Father, he shall testify of me. He's going to give testimony to the fact that I am who I say I am, and you shall bear witness. Now, a person does that. In uh, John 14 and verse 26, John 14, verse 26, But the Comforter which is the Holy Ghost, whom the Father will send in my name, he shall teach you all things. A person who does it. And bring all things to your remembrance, whatsoever I have said unto you. And the Gospels, even though they were written decades after Jesus said them, they've been recalled by the Holy Spirit and are therefore accurate. And so you find, if you read the Bible, the Holy Spirit is said to do the things a person does. He guides, for example. He is the one who restrains. Do you remember in Thessalonians, it says that when the tribulation comes upon us, he that restraineth is taken away. Now that's a person doing that. And the tribulation is an appalling time, isn't it? I mean, the salt of the earth has gone. He who restrains is no longer restraining. And evil is just rampant on the face of this earth. Do you know the Holy Spirit gives orders as well? Can we just see that? Go to Acts chapter 8. Acts chapter 8, 
And can we just read one verse, verse 29, where we see Philip. Do you remember Philip went and he was told to leave the revival in Samaria and go and meet one man in the middle of the desert, an Ethiopian. And who told him to go up to the chariot? The Holy Spirit did. In verse 29, look what it says. Then the Spirit said unto Philip, Go near and join thyself to this chariot. The Holy Spirit thought it, the Holy Spirit knew when to say it, and he communicated it to Philip. Lovely. These are things that people do. Oh, my favourite, I'll tell you this, the favourite thing that I like is the fact that the Holy Spirit interprets our prayers. That's the most wonderful thing of all. Can we just see that? That's in Romans. Romans 8 and verse 26. Romans 8, verse 26. I'm very glad of this verse. Uh, Every day you need the Holy Spirit to do this to you. Likewise, it, it says here, the Spirit also helpeth our infirmities. For we know not what we should pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself, it should be, maketh intercession for us with groanings which cannot be uttered. Now, isn't that lovely? You see, I pray prayers to God. The Holy Spirit comes along and he interprets those prayers. And I'm glad that he does. Do you know, many of us have prayed prayers which if the Lord had answered, we'd be in a right mess now. I'll tell you that. I mean, when I think of the women that I knew when I was at university, that I said, Lord, please make her mine. And I'd have ended up with the wrong woman, you see. I mean, some of the ladies I prayed about, they'd have eaten me for breakfast. There's no question about it. Praise God, the Holy Spirit interpreted the prayer. He said, actually, what he wants is the right wife. I know he's praying for her, but really what he wants is the right wife. Forget her. And the Holy Spirit interpreted the prayer. Actually, I don't know whether I've ever told you this, but before I was uh, converted, I was mad keen on Tibet, the country, Tibet. I went through this Tibetan phase, you know, where I was reading every book on Tibet. My desire was to go to Lhasa, which is the capital of Tibet. Right, if you got that right, continue to the next question. Um, You know, I I joined the Tibetan Society when I arrived at university. I used to go along and and listen to all this stuff, and we used to have sales of Tibetan work for the Tibetan refugees, and all this sort of stuff. Then I was converted. Now, immediately I began to think, oh, well, Lord, you want me as a missionary in Tibet. I know that you do. Lord, please send me to Tibet very fast. Please. I'm sure there are other people praying that as well. Lord, <laughs> please. Lord, I I just want to serve you in Tibet, and I know you want me to be a missionary, and please send me to Tibet as fast as possible. Please, Lord, you know, I want to sail down the rivers and meet the people and, and try and convert these people and so on. Now, in fact, you see, that wasn't the Lord's will for me. Well, as far as I know, it wasn't. I mean, if next year I suddenly leave for Tibet, you know that it was. What the Holy Spirit did was this. The Holy Spirit actually said, Lord went to the Father. Father, he's praying that prayer. In fact, what he means is, Lord, will you use me, please? (laughs) Lord, he doesn't mean Tibet. He'd hate Tibet. I mean, I can't think of a less Tibetan person than me, you know. I mean, I love butter. I love tea, but rancid butter tea? I can't really imagine it. A yak doesn't seem to go naturally with me somehow, you know. The Lord knew what I meant. How? The Holy Spirit took the prayers that I uttered and interpreted them to the Lord. And that's why I'm in Bognor Regis now. (laughs) 
Now, isn't it good news? Do you know, I believe this, not one prayer is ever wasted. I'm sure I'll say this again when we come on to prayer and understanding prayer. No prayer's wasted, but some of them are interpreted, right, which is good news. And when we reach heaven, perhaps the Lord will show us all the prayers that we prayed, and he'll say, aren't you glad I didn't answer that one? Thank you, Lord, for all the women I didn't marry, and thank you for the woman I did marry. Hallelujah. That's wonderful. So he interprets, you see. Now, that's the function of a person. A machine can't. I mean, a machine, a force, simply interprets the information that you get and passes it straight on as it is. You see, you put this card in and the machine does its bit. A person says, no, he doesn't mean that. He's a fool at the moment, you see. And gradually, of course, the Lord begins putting you right and soon you're praying the correct prayers, do you see? All right, what are the things that mark out a person? A person has three things, generally. Forgive me if you're a person and you haven't got one of these. You need prayer. Um, most people have, first of all, a mind. They can think. I know it's hard to believe, but they have a mind, they have memory, and so on. The next thing people have is emotion, and the third thing people have is willpower. Now, if we can show that the Holy Spirit has these, we definitely can prove from the Bible that he is actually a person. So can we have one verse on each? First of all, does the Holy Spirit have a mind? Yes, he does. Where do we find a reference to that? 1 Corinthians and chapter 2, and I think it's worth our while turning to it. 1 Corinthians chapter 2. I'm going to read from verse 9, which is a very well-known verse. 1 Corinthians chapter 2 and verse 9. But as it is written, it says, I hath not seen, nor ear heard, neither have entered into the heart of man the things which God has prepared for them that love him. But God hath revealed them unto us by his Spirit. For the Spirit searcheth all things, yea, the deep things of God. For what man knoweth the things of a man, save the Spirit of man which is in him? Even so the things of God knoweth no man, but the Spirit of God. And here the Holy Spirit is said to know, he said to search out. He said he communicates these things. That's the function of mind. You see, the Holy Spirit definitely has a mind. He's a person. Where does it say he has emotion? Well, this is a well-known verse. In Ephesians chapter 4, Ephesians and chapter 4 and verse 30. Right? Now look what it says. And grieve not the Holy Spirit of God, whereby you are sealed unto the day of redemption. Grieve not. That means make him cry, make him sad. Now a person can be sad. A machine can't be sad. You see, that's function of personality. By the way, if you really want to see a miserable person, don't look at the world. You look at a Christian who's out of fellowship. The most miserable people you will ever meet anywhere are born-again ones who've decided to try and live in the world. Oh, they are so miserable. We say they're as miserable as sin. They really are too. You see, when you were not converted, you could enjoy the world, right? It hated you. Gradually you became sick of it, but at least you could get some sort of satisfaction in the world. Once you became the Lord's, you were crucified as far as the world was concerned, and the world was crucified unto you. You go back to the world, you know what happens. You're trying to get the old enjoyment. The trouble is, the Holy Spirit is sobbing inside of you, and he doesn't leave you. He's always there, crying and crying and crying. 
And wherever you go to try and get satisfaction, you'll find it will not work because the Holy Spirit is grieving all the time. So there it says you can grieve the Holy Spirit. Last of all, where does it say that he has will? Well, in a passage we'll be dealing with in a few weeks' time when we come on to moving in the gifts of the Spirit. And that's in 1 Corinthians chapter 12. 1 Corinthians chapter 12, where it's talking about the gifts of the Holy Spirit. And it just says this, But all these gifts worketh that one and the selfsame Spirit, dividing to every man severally as he wills. In other words, the Holy Spirit decides and the Holy Spirit distributes as he's decided. He's a real person. Now that's it. It took 400 years for this truth to be revealed to the early church. Isn't that staggering? There were people who believed it, of course, but it took 400 years to define it. The second thing we've got to know is that the Holy Spirit is God. And in the uh, Character of God series, I actually dealt with this. So can we just see one verse, just to remind ourselves, do you remember where it's found, the key passage that proves that the Holy Spirit is God? It's found in Acts chapter 5. Do you remember the passage that deals with Ananias and Sapphira. Acts chapter 5, and you'll remember they wanted to appear wholehearted, but they weren't wholehearted. Their property was theirs, they could have kept it, they could have done as they pleased with it, but they wanted to be seen to have given everything. Trouble is, they didn't want to give everything. And so they lied about what they'd done. And they sold some land, do you remember? Said it was all, but it wasn't. And if we read from verse 3, But Peter said, Ananias, why hath Satan filled thine heart to lie to the Holy Ghost and to keep back part of the price of the land? There it is. He's lying to the Holy Ghost. And then in verse 4, Whilst it remained, was it not thine own? After it was sold, was it not in thine own power? Why hast thou conceived this thing in thine heart? Thou hast not lied unto men, but unto God. And by comparing those two verses, you'll find this. He's lied to the Holy Spirit in one verse. It's said to be lying unto God in the next verse. Result, the Holy Spirit is God. Now, it's those two things that are key in our understanding. And there are other verses. By the way, isn't it lovely to know that the Holy Spirit really, truly is God? It means this, that the Holy Spirit is sovereign. That's good. It means that he is absolutely righteous. He's absolutely just. He's omnipresent, omnipotent omniscient. He's eternal. He's love. He's truth. And he never changes. The Holy Spirit, that is. Do you know I've got the Holy Spirit within me who loves me, who understands me thoroughly, and who cares for me? Isn't that better than having a force in you which is incapable of doing any of those? The Holy Spirit constantly in me. He understands me right down to my little toenails. He understands everything about me. He understands all the quirky bits that I've got. You know, he understands all the little problems, all the good points. He understands everything. And he's on my side, not just on my side. He's within me wherever I go. This is the good news. He is the same Spirit that brooded over the waters at creation. The very same person. Do you imagine that? That person who brooded over the waters is the person who's in me now and who's in you now. The same person that came upon Moses is in you now. The same person. Wonderful. The same one that caused David to dance before the ark of the Lord is in you now. Marvellous. Above everything, 
Think of this. The same person who came upon Mary and she conceived Jesus is in you now, and you know he's still bringing to birth Jesus in us. Oh, it's wonderful, wonderful news. And the good news for every Christian in the church is this. That blessed person who is the Holy Spirit will never leave you. When Jesus says, I will never leave you nor forsake you, he is talking about the fact that the Holy Spirit will constantly manifest him inside. The Holy Spirit is always there. I think we become a bit blasé about this. You know, the fact we've got the Holy Spirit within us. Well, I've got the Holy Spirit. Have you got the Holy Spirit? Yeah, I've got the Holy Spirit. It's time I think we saw what a wonderful, blessed person he is. And he dwells inside every one of us. He's there permanently. Do you know, before Jesus died on the cross and rose from the dead, that wasn't true. The Holy Spirit didn't dwell permanently in anyone before the time of Jesus. In the Old Testament, what used to happen was this. He used to come upon people for specific tasks. So if he appointed someone to a task, he used to anoint them for that particular task. I mean, the people who made the uh, tabernacle, they were all empowered by the Holy Spirit, right? Even the women that did the sewing of the, the curtains, they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and did the sewing. The minute the sewing ended, the Holy Spirit left them, departed. The people who did the carving in the temple, they were all filled with the Holy Spirit. But the minute the carving was over, the woodwork was finished, the Holy Spirit departed. You see? He only came for the task. The metal workers, it was the same. This is why, incidentally, the temple must have been fantastic. Because it wasn't the crude workmanship that had been seen formerly. This was the workmanship under the guidance and anointing of the Holy Ghost. Oh, it must have been fantastic to the people who'd actually seen it. But once it was done, the Holy Spirit was removed. For those who were appointed king, they were filled with the Holy Spirit. But if they got out of fellowship with God, the Holy Spirit was withdrawn. Do you remember David's prayer? David's prayer was this, take not thy spirit from me. Do you remember that? You as a Christian can never pray that prayer because the Holy Spirit is never going to leave you. Isn't that good news? Praise the Lord. So don't say, oh, well, it's in the Bible, I better pray it. No, no. David had to pray it. Saul certainly ought to have prayed it, though as far as we know, never did. You can't pray it. The Holy Spirit is in you. And incidentally, in the Old Testament, if he was grieved with someone, he used to leave. If he's grieved with you, he stays inside, still grieving. You see? Very important. Now, it's Jesus who has changed things around. And let's go back to John's Gospel, and let's just see... Uh, a few things. Let's first of all go to John 14, where Jesus talks about this change that is coming. John 14, verse 15, I'm going to read. If you love me, Jesus says, this is John 14, verse 15, if you love me, keep my commandments, and I will pray the Father, and he shall give you another comforter, that he may abide with you forever. Isn't that good news? This comforter is going to abide with you forever. Even the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, because it seeth him not, neither knoweth him, but you know him, for he dwelleth with you and shall be in you. Now do you see that? At the time Jesus was speaking, the Holy Spirit dwelt with them. But the time was coming when he would be in them, and that means permanently in them. Good news. I will not leave you comfortless. Wonderful. And so the Holy Spirit is within us all. All right. Go then to John 16. 
John 16 and verse 7. Now, what did Jesus have to do for this comforter to come? Well, he had to do two things. Verse 7 tells us one, Nevertheless, and we've read this before, I tell you the truth, it is good for you that I go away. For if I go not away, the Comforter will not come to you. But if I depart, I will send him unto you. The first thing Jesus had to do for the Holy Spirit to come was he had to depart to the Father. That's the first thing. If I don't go, he says, the Holy Spirit will not come. But if I go, I promise I'll send him upon you. So that's the first thing. The second thing he did, and we don't have to turn to this, it's found in a very well-known passage in John 7. Do you remember where Jesus says, Let him that thirst come unto me and drink. Do you remember that? Out of his innermost parts, out of his belly, will flow rivers of living water. And then I think it's verse 39. Check up on that afterwards. But John 7, about 39, it says, This he spake about the Holy Spirit, which was not yet given because he was not yet glorified. And the, so we learn the second thing that's got to happen before the Holy Spirit can come is that Jesus had to be glorified. Those two things. Unless that occurred, the Holy Spirit could not come in the way that he has come. Now we've got to understand this. This is extremely important. What this means is, it certainly couldn't have happened before the death and resurrection of Christ. All right. I want to draw out the plan that most people have in their minds concerning the time that the Holy Spirit came. And by the way, you'll read this in books, you'll meet many Christians, and this is the majority view concerning this. We'll draw a time scale here. You have the cross, then you have three days in the tomb, and on the third day, Jesus rose from the dead. That's the resurrection here. So there's the cross. Three days later, the resurrection. And then people say, Jesus stayed then on the earth for 40 days before being taken up to heaven and to the Father at the ascension. That's what the A is. They then say, there is another 10 days to the day of Pentecost. And there's P... And then they say the Holy Spirit came on the day of Pentecost. Now that's the general plan. Do you all know that plan? Right? It's fairly easy, isn't it? The cross, three days later there was the resurrection. Jesus stayed on the earth for 40 days. He then ascended to the Father. Then, they say, 10 days later he sent the Holy Spirit down and on the day of Pentecost the Holy Spirit came. So the majority of people put the formation of the church here on the day of Pentecost. And they say that the people received the Holy Spirit on that day, on the day of Pentecost there. That's 50 days after Jesus rose from the dead. The problem is, it can't be so. It can't be as simple as that. And you might say, well, why not? Well, because John 20 contradicts it. Now, can we just go to John and chapter 20, and we're going to see problems. You see, you've got slight problems immediately, and we're going to read it through in a minute. Because in verse 22 of John 20, which is actually on the evening of the resurrection, that's here. Jesus appears, and look what he does. He says this, And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive ye the Holy Spirit. Now that's a problem, isn't it? 
Because you see, according to this scheme, that's 40 days before he left to go to be with the farmer. But Jesus actually said, I've got to go, otherwise the Holy Spirit can't come. And yet 40 days apparently before the ascension, Jesus actually says, receive the Holy Spirit. And by the way, I have to tell you this, it's what we call the aorist in the Greek, A-O-R-I-S-T. And an aorist means in a moment of time, receive it now, he says. Receive the Holy Spirit at this moment. And he breathed into them. Lovely, isn't it? The Father breathed into the body of Adam. He became a living soul. The Holy Spirit breathes into the dead bones and Israel comes back to life. And here Jesus breathed on the disciples. But it's not after the ascension. Oh dear, it's 40 days before. We've got problems. Uh, the problems get worse. I hate to tell you this. Look, and why? Well, look at this in, in verse 17, where Jesus appears and Mary sees him. Look what he says. He says to her, don't touch me. Mary, don't touch me. Why? I haven't yet ascended. She's not allowed to touch him because he hadn't ascended. Oh dear, oh dear. Apparently then, no one could touch him for 40 days at least. That is, before his ascension. The problem is that over in verse 27, which is eight days after the resurrection, he says this to Thomas, Reach hither thy finger, and behold my hands. Reach hither thy hand, and thrust it into my side, and be not faithless, but believing. We've got problems, do you see? Because apparently now Thomas can touch him before he's ascended. Oh dear, now this gets very complicated, doesn't it? So I think what we must do is this. We must read from verse 11 down, and then you'll see how simple this is. John chapter 20, verse 11. If we don't understand this, we'll never understand the doctrine of the baptism of the Holy Spirit. I'm going to read it from verse 11. Now Jesus has risen, bless his wonderful name. But Mary stood without at the sepulchre weeping. And as she wept, she stooped down and looked into the sepulchre. And seeth two angels in white sitting, the one at the head, the other at the feet, where the body of Jesus had lain. And they said unto her, Woman, why weepest thou? She saith unto them, Because they have taken away my Lord, and I know not where they have laid him. And when she had thus said, she turned herself back and saw Jesus standing, and knew not that it was Jesus. Jesus saith unto her, Woman, why weepest thou? Whom seekest thou? She, supposing him to be the gardener, said unto him, Sir, if thou hast borne him hence, Tell me where thou hast laid him, and I will take him away. Jesus said unto her, Mary. She turned herself and saith unto him, Rabboni, which is to say, Master. Jesus said unto her, Touch me not, for I am not yet ascended, but go to my brethren and say unto them, I ascend. Which is present tense, which means I am ascending. Go and tell them, and this is on the morning of the resurrection. Go and tell them I'm ascending. And I wonder whether he added, I'll see them tonight. I don't know. I would have added that. Go and tell them that I can't see them this morning because I'm ascending. But I'll see them tonight. Now this is an amazing statement. For Jesus is actually saying on the morning of the resurrection that he is going to ascend at that point there to his father. Now, if you don't understand this, just leave it for a minute and you'll understand it. Now, let's read on. 
Tell them that I am ascending unto my father and your father, to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene came and told the disciples that she'd seen the Lord and that he'd spoken these things unto her. Then the same day at evening, now this is the day of the resurrection, being the first day of the week, when the doors were shut where the disciples were assembled for fear of the Jews, came Jesus and stood in the midst and said unto them, Peace be unto you. And when he had so said, he showed unto them his hands and his side. Then were they, the disciples glad when they saw the Lord. Then said Jesus to them again, Peace be unto you. As my Father has sent me, so I send you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and saith unto them, Aorist imperative, receive now the Holy Spirit. What's happened? On the morning of the resurrection, Jesus had been to his father and had come straight down to be back with the disciples. That has to be the case. And when he returned on that morning, and you'll understand why in just a minute, why he did this. When he returned on that morning, he brought the Holy Spirit back with him. Praise God. He breathed upon them, and do you know the Holy Spirit came permanently to dwell there on the earth. This is the birth of the church at this point. This is the point when every person who was born again became permanently indwelt with the Holy Spirit. It's good news. By the way, they didn't have to be there for that to actually happen. These disciples, as far as we know, felt absolutely nothing. They felt nothing. But the Holy Spirit came and permanently indwelt them at that particular point. Do you remember the time when the Spirit that was upon Moses was shared with 72 others? Do you remember that? 70 were with Moses and they received his Spirit. And do you remember two, they were still in the camp as far as I remember. Eldad was one of them. Do you remember? And the chap comes running up to Moses and said, listen, you're all prophesying, all 70 of you here, two are prophesying in the camp. Tell them to stop, Moses. Tell them to stop. And Moses says, I certainly won't. They didn't have to be with Moses to receive the anointing that had come from God. And at this point, every single born-again believer received the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. Every believer that was alive at this time. There it is. So Jesus rises from the dead. He says, I'm ascending. He visits the Father, comes straight down with the Holy Spirit, breathes upon them and says, receive the Holy Spirit. And because he's already ascended, we then find this, uh, verse 26. And after eight days, again, his disciples were within, and Thomas with them. Then came Jesus, the doors being shut, stood in the midst and said, peace be unto you. Then saith he to Thomas, Reach hither thy finger, behold my hands, and reach hither thy hand, and thrust it into my side, be not faithless, but believing. And Thomas answered and said, My Lord and my God. In other words, you can touch me now, Thomas, I've already ascended, and I've come down. Now, unfortunately, this is generally not known to people. But I think we can see that it's perfectly correct when we see when this actually took place. Turn with me to John 20 and verse 1. And then we'll see where we find this in the Old Testament. Now in John 20 and verse 1, we hear a definition of the day when Jesus rose from the dead. It says in verse 1, The first day of the week cometh Mary Magdalene early. If any of you would like to check this up in Young's Literal or in the Greek, you'll find that actually that's not quite accurate. I hope none of you have got Bibles that say on Sunday, 
I hope none of you have got a Bible that actually says that. It doesn't say it. What it says literally is this. The first, on the first of the Sabbaths, plural, or the first of the weeks. That's when that occurred. It says here, on the first of the Sabbaths cometh Mary Magdalene early, or on the first of the weeks cometh Mary Magdalene early. No reference to a Sunday at all. It's a reference to a Jewish feast which was called the Feast of Weeks. And on the first day of that Jewish Feast of Weeks is the day when Jesus rose from the dead. It doesn't actually locate which day of the week it was. It is telling you about a Jewish feast. Now, it's when you look at the Feast of Weeks, you suddenly realize what happened to Jesus. So can we now go in the Old Testament to Leviticus and chapter 23 and let's see the patterning. Leviticus 23, and I'm going to read from verse 4 because this gives us the order of these feasts and we'll see what they are. Now, I'm going to read from verse 4. These are the feasts of the Lord, even holy convocations, which you shall proclaim in their seasons. In the fourteenth day of the first month at even is the Lord's Passover. Now that's the day of the Passover. On the fifteenth day of the same month is the Feast of Unleavened Bread. Right. Uh, P for Passover. Unleavened Bread then begins. On the fifteenth day of the same month is the Feast of Unleavened Bread unto the Lord. Seven days you must eat unleavened bread. In the first day you shall have a holy convocation. You shall do no servile work therein. It was going to be a Sabbath. Not a normal Sabbath day, an extra Sabbath day. All right? But you shall offer an offering made by fire unto the Lord seven days. In the seventh day is an holy convocation. You shall do no servile work therein. Now, look at this, verse 9. And the Lord spake unto Moses, saying, Speak unto the children of Israel, and say unto them, When ye be come into the land which I give unto you, shall reap the harvest thereof, then you shall bring a sheaf of the firstfruits of your harvest unto the priest. And he shall wave the sheaf before the Lord to, to be accepted for you. On the morrow after the Sabbath, the priest shall wave it. On this day here, there was a wave offering. Now, what the priest used to do was this. He used to take a ring and he used to throw it into the fields. The harvest was just coming to fullness. He used to take this ring, throw it into the fields, and the ring used to land in a bit of the field. He used to take the corn that was in that ring and cut it. That was the first fruits of the harvest. The rest of the harvest was going to be gathered in, but this was the first that was gathered in. He used to take this first fruit, and here's the key, on the morrow after the Sabbath, which was also the first day of the weeks, the first of the Sabbaths, as we'll read, he used to wave it before the Lord. That meant he lifted it up to God and brought it down again. That was it. And what was he doing? I'll tell you what he was doing. He was saying, Lord, before we cut any more of the harvest, we give you the glory for the harvest. It's all yours. And bring it down again. Like that. Now, do you see the patterning? So, there was Passover, unleavened bread. On the first day of the weeks, first of the weeks, the first fruit 
was lifted to God as a wave offering. And by the way, 1 Corinthians 15.20 says that Jesus is our first fruit. And so he is. Praise God. And remember this, Jesus had to fulfill the law. He had to fulfill this as well. That means on the first of the Sabbath, he has to be lifted up and brought down again. He's the wave offering. It has to be so. And that's exactly what happened. Dead on time, or should I say alive on time, on the first day of the weeks. Now that's the explanation for that little thing, you see. All right, let's just read on in Leviticus 23, right? I'll read it again, verse 11. He shall wave the sheaf, this is the sheaf of the first fruits before the Lord, to be accepted for you on the morrow after the Sabbath, the priest shall wave it. Verse 15 then, you shall count unto you from the morrow after the Sabbath, from the day that you brought forth the sheaf of the wave offering, seven Sabbaths shall be complete. And so you have then seven Sabbaths, which is 49 days, and on the 50th day is the day of Pentecost. Pentecost means 50th. There it is. Now, do you see the patterning? But the first fruits is waved at the beginning on the first of the weeks. And Jesus fulfilled the pattern. So here we've got the Passover, the Feast of Unleavened Bread arrived. You remember you had a, a Sabbath in the middle there. On the first of the weeks, Jesus is waved as the wave offering. He goes up to the Father, gives him the glory. Now Mary couldn't touch him until he'd done it. Because you see, if she'd done it, he would have received some of the glory. But his Father had to have all the glory. He says, don't touch me yet until I've ascended. When I've ascended, you can touch me all you want. And up he went. He took the glory to the Father and he came straight down with the Holy Spirit. And on that day of the resurrection, the Holy Spirit was released into the world. The most wonderful news. Something else happened 50 days later on the day of Pentecost. We'll see that in just a moment. But do you see the patterning that Jesus fulfilled in all this? Now that's lovely. This is why I can tell you that every person who's believed on the Lord Jesus Christ has the Holy Spirit indwelling them. Has to be so. And any charismatic who turns to a non-charismatic, that is someone who is not baptized in the Holy Spirit and says, well, of course, you haven't got the Holy Spirit, is actually saying something that is totally unbiblical and is very offensive indeed. Every person who's born again has the Holy Spirit. And by the way, every single person who's born again is a first-class Christian. There's no such thing as a second-class and a first-class Christian. We're all first-class whether we're baptized in the Holy Spirit or not, whether we believe in the baptism of the Holy Spirit or not, every Christian's first class, and I'll fight for them. Praise the Lord, right? On that day, on the evening of the resurrection, the Holy Spirit was released in indwelling power, and he came and indwelt every single believer that there was. Oh, be careful how you speak. Let's go to the New Testament and just check that out again. Go to Romans 8 again. This Prince of Chapters, it's a wonderful chapter. Romans 8, verse 9, and I'll read it all, but notice the last part. And I have to tell you, there are Christians around today who get this wrong, seriously. Verse 9, But you are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if so be that the Spirit of God dwell in you. Now, if any man have not the Spirit of Christ, he is none of his why is the Holy Spirit called the Spirit of Christ here? Because the Holy Spirit is there to reveal Christ. He's the one who glorifies Christ. 
If you don't have the Holy Spirit, you're not a born-again believer. But if you are a born-again believer, you've got the Holy Spirit. Good news. Great stuff. There's another verse that also locks this in Ephesians chapter 1. And those of you with a modern translation, you have no problem with this verse. Those of us with the King James Version, we've got a problem with it. In Ephesians 1.13, and I've heard this preached wrongly, this verse. It says this, oh, I'll read from verse 12, that we should be to the praise of his glory who first trusted in Christ, in whom ye also trusted, after that ye heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, in whom also, after that ye believed, you were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise. And those of you with a good translation will have that translated like this. When you believed, you were sealed with the Holy Spirit. It happened the moment you believed. The King James suggests that there's a gap. There is no gap. The Greek is clear. Forget this if you don't know any Greek. If you know Greek, this is what you've got. You've got in the word believe an aorist participle, and an aorist participle goes with the action of the other verb in the sentence. So you've got two verbs, believe and seal, they happen at the same moment. The instant you believe, you're sealed. That's what this says. Good news. And by the way, every single Christian, everyone who's believed on the Lord Jesus Christ, has the Holy Spirit within them. Good. All right. The Holy Spirit does 36 things to you instantly. You're born again. 36. I'm going to list them one day, I promise. Someone said to me the other day, he said, you know, I was listening to an old tape of yours. You said it was 34. He said, that's an increase of two in the last five years. And he said, do you think you'll ever make 40? Well, I don't know. But at the moment, it's 36 things. The Holy Spirit does 36 things to us the moment we're born again. Four are essential for us to know. And to help you remember four, the most essential four things, I'm going to write up a mnemonic, right? You know what a mnemonic is, don't you? Right? A mnemonic is the Greek word for a tombstone. It helps you remember the person who's dead. And a mnemonic is something that helps you remember something. I hope there's something that's alive. The mnemonic I would give you is RIBS+. plus, R-I-B-S+. plus. And whenever you think of the Holy Spirit, you should think RIBS+. plus. Right? I remember a lot of things using mnemonics. There was a word I made up for the uh, states in Canada, you know. It was BASMOC, B-A-S-M-O-Q. And all my classes, to whom I taught Canada, they all learnt the word BASMOC. Was there anyone here that I ever taught that to, or not? Well, BASMOC. And using BASMOC, you can go right across Canada, right? British Columbia, Alberta, Saskatchewan, Manitoba, Ontario, Quebec. And then you have to remember the others on top. But it's not BASMOC. You can never get them wrong. I mean, I might be sitting on uh, Ask Me Another or some question like that, and they say, what is the third uh, province in from the Pacific? BASMOC. B-A-S Saskatchewan. Oh, how wonderful. <laughs> and I've never even been there. Now... These are useful, these mnemonics. The Holy Spirit, RIBS+. Plus. What does RIBS+, plus stand for? R stands for regeneration. The moment you believed on the Lord Jesus Christ, you were washed with the spirit of regeneration. Good. You were born again. That's what regeneration means, born again. So regeneration is the first thing that happens to every believer. The second thing that happens, the I here, is indwelling. 
The Holy Spirit comes and indwells and he's with you forever. Do you know, never now, for the rest of eternity, will you ever be without the Holy Spirit. And by the way, when the Holy Spirit, who is he that restrains evil, is removed from the earth, guess who's going with him? Hallelujah. We are. All right, now I won't tell you what doctrinal point that brings out, but you should have guessed, all right? We're indwelt with the Holy Spirit. The thought of Christians being left on this earth without the Holy Spirit is nonsense, absolute nonsense. Uh, I indwelling. B, we're baptized into the body of Jesus Christ. By one Spirit, we are all baptized into one body. 1 Corinthians 12, verse 13. Right? baptized. So our regeneration, I indwelling, be you're baptized into the body of Christ, the weakest and the strongest, all in the same body, right? The most intelligent and the foolish, we're all in one body, isn't that good news? The most religious of us, who's born again, and the least religious, high and low, we're all in the body of Christ. Great. S, sealed. Every one of us is sealed. In the ancient world, every king had a seal. Did you know that? You used to put a blob of wax and put your seal on it. The seal meant two things. One, it meant ownership. He owns you. And every time the devil looks at you, you've got the seal on you. And that seal means hands off. It's my property. Right? We've got to know that we're sealed. It also means something else. You know, It means security. If the seal was on, you didn't touch it. That's the king's property, right? Meant security. The moment you believe, you're sealed with the Holy Spirit. And that means you're safe and secure, praise God, forever and forever. Why have I added the plus? To remind us that it's plus a gift. All of us receive a certain gift or many gifts from the Holy Spirit. So ribs plus, regeneration, indwelling, baptism in the body of Christ, sealed plus a gift. Now there's the work of the Holy Spirit summed up in uh, a very quick way. All right, now there you've got it. And there we could end for today, but I don't quite want to end it for today. I've got a few more minutes to say. Now most Christians agree with ribs plus. Where charismatics and Pentecostals now go is somewhere else. For the amazing thing is that Jesus came and sent the Holy Spirit here on the day of the resurrection. But 40 days later, when he was taken up into heaven, it's never called the ascension, by the way, this is the ascension. When he was taken up into heaven, where he still is and where he will remain until the second advent, right? When he was taken up, he said something to those disciples. And it's this that I want to end with. I want us to go to Acts chapter 1 because this is the key for all that we're going to study next time. Acts chapter 1. I'm going to read from verse 1. Forty days after they'd received the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. Forty days after John 20. And Luke says this, The former treatise, which is Luke's Gospel, have I made, O Theophilus, of all that Jesus began both to do and teach, until the day in which he was taken up, after that he, through the Holy Ghost, had given commandments unto the apostles whom he had chosen, to whom also he showed himself alive after his passion by many infallible proofs. Isn't that lovely? Infallible, no one can deny them. 
being seen of them forty days, and speaking of the things pertaining to the kingdom of God. And being assembled together with them, commanded them that they should not depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which saith he, ye have heard of me. For John truly baptized with water, but ye shall be baptized with the Holy Ghost not many days hence. Now that's very important. It's said to people who already had the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit, stay in Jerusalem, I've got something to give you. The promise of the Father. Wonderful. Look, verse 6. When they therefore were come together, they asked of him, saying, Lord, wilt thou at this time restore again the kingdom to Israel? He said unto them, It is not for you to know the times or the seasons which the Father has put in his own power, but you shall receive power. After that the Holy Ghost is come upon you, and ye shall be witnesses unto me, both in Jerusalem and in all Judea, and in Samaria, and unto the uttermost parts of the earth. And when he had spoken these things, while they beheld, he was taken up, and a cloud received him out of their sight. And it's verse 8 that's the key. On the day of Pentecost, this is what will happen to you. You shall receive power. After that, the Holy Ghost is come upon you. This is not the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. They've already got that. This is the empowering with the Holy Spirit for service and for witness. Unless you understand these things, you'll be confused over the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Oh, how I praise God for the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Let me just end by giving a little testimony. My uh, testimony of salvation is a very complicated one, but I would just like to take you to the time when I came uh, and dedicated my heart to the Lord when I was at university. And I'd been a an atheist, you know, for some years. And at university, I'd believed on the Lord Jesus Christ and uh, you know, my depression had lifted to some extent. But a few weeks after that, I felt really bad again. And the chap who'd been instrumental in leading me to the Lord, a chap called Dick Hall, he lived opposite me in the corridor. I thought, well, I'd better go across and see him. You know, I feel so low. And I went across to see him, and he later became an Anglican vicar. And I said, Dick, I'm feeling so low and so wretched. You know, I really feel bad. And he said, Roger, it's some sin in your life. And he said, what you've got to do is kneel down and confess all your sins to me. So I said, have I got to? And so he said, yes. And so we knelt down together and I confessed all the sins I could think of, you see. And afterwards I felt no better, but I couldn't disappoint him, you see. So having got completely clear of sin, he said, now you feel better, don't you? And then I was back in sin because I lied to him and said, yes, much better. <laughs> and I felt terrible. And I left his room and I thought, oh, I feel so awful. And there was an Anglican vicar staying in the Hall of Residence at the time, a chap called Joe Laville. And I thought, I'll go and see Joe. And I went downstairs, knocked on his door, and a voice from inside said, come in, Roger. And I couldn't believe it. I was still outside the door. I thought, come in, Roger. What's that? And I came in. He said, where have you been? He said, half an hour ago, the Lord told me you'd be coming to see me. And I said, really? He said, look, I've got an appointment now in about five minutes. He said, have you ever heard of the baptism of the Spirit? Well, may I say, it had been years since I'd heard of it. I said to him, no. And he said, well, I haven't got time to explain it to you. He said, you just kneel down. I'm going to lay my hands on your head and you're going to start speaking in tongues. Okay? 
I said, okay. And, and that was it. He laid hands on me. These Anglicans, they get into a lot of trouble, don't they? And he laid hands on me and said, Jesus, in, I ask you to baptize him in the Holy Spirit. And immediately I started to speak in other tongues. Immediately. Started singing in other tongues and all the rest. And there was a person in the room who uh, actually translated the first part. It was in Spanish that I spoke. Now that was after I'd given my heart to Christ there in the university. Do you see? Praise the Lord. That's what happened on the day of Pentecost. That was my experience. Now, to talk about that and to give the doctrinal background to that, we need another session. And next time I'll be speaking about the baptism of the Holy Spirit and I will be telling those of you who haven't received the Holy Spirit how to receive the baptism in the Holy Spirit. Why, it's as simple as falling off a bed. Praise the Lord. And we'll be going through the various details. Let's just pray and then we'll complete for tonight. Thank you, Lord. Hallelujah. Father, we do thank you that the Word of God contains so many deep truths, Father. It's wonderful. Father, thank you we can never get to the real bottom of it because there's always more to learn. But we do thank you, Lord, so much that you sent the Holy Spirit to come and indwell every one of us. That we can say, he'll never leave me nor forsake me. Wherever we go, he's there. Father, we thank you tonight for the wonderful person of the Holy Spirit. And Father, I ask that his love, his counsel, his comfort should be upon every person and within every person in this meeting. Father, as we go to our various homes, just bless us and Father, equip us for the next time when we come together. Father, may there be such a release of your Spirit in the midst that every person who comes seeking will find. In Jesus' name I ask it. Thank you, Lord. Amen. Praise God. Amen. Praise God.